welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. I'm here with episode number 43 in our Penguin Little Black Classics review collection. This is where we have embarked on the endeavor to review all 80 of Penguin's Little Black Classics. These are short, little slim volumes of world literature. Today, again, is episode 43 on a poetry collection called Remember Body, which is the title of one of the poems. Though I've been grateful to have Amanda, a guest and friend of the pod, tagging in on some of these recently. Today is a solo episode. I felt it cruel to assign her about 30 or 30, I think it's actually like over 50 poems. Um, just, you know, trying to find those on the internet, I think would be maddening. And Ryan is still tagged out on parental duties. So I'm here doing this review today, solo. So the poetry collection today is by an author. Um, they g- gave his name as C.P. Cavafy, um, but I think his first name is Constantine. Anyway, we'll go with C.P. Cavafy today. And he was an Egyptian uh, and Greek writer, so European writer, and lived, I believe, during the 20th century, maybe also a little bit in the 19th, but I think he was primarily a 20th century writer. I learned a term while doing some light research about his life and his background on the Poetry Foundation and Wikipedia. He was apparently considered, and I'd never seen this word before, an Egyptiot. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe it's Egyptiot. But apparently that is a, um, a type of Greek uh, immigrant to Egypt because there's such a large community of Greeks in Egypt. There, There's a term for that. So it's an Egyptiot Greek poet is what they deemed him. Um, apparently quite famous, quite well regarded. And Penguin has assembled here, I think about 50 poems, maybe a little bit more. Some of them are extremely brief. Only one of them, I think maybe two, went longer than a page. So for the most part, these are extremely slim, very readable poems. And there are quite a lot of them in the collection. So I feel like by the end of it, I had a pretty good sampling and understanding of uh, Kavafi's work. All right, let's dig into the review then, shall we? Let's begin, as I am in the current set of reviews, with a simile, just to start things off light and get the uh, creative juices going. I thought reading this was like, and I'm going to use a teacher simile here, sorry, I can only <laughs> play off of my own lived experience, I guess, um, but I thought reading this was like when you're a teacher and you finally create a perfect lesson plan something that has the right flow to it, you know, it doesn't leave students bored, but it also has the depth and insight to get them intrigued and engaged, to ask the right right questions. And I think, again, I'd go back to the flow and pacing. That can be a hard thing to master in a lesson. You don't want to make it choppy, but you also want to make it substantial. And anyway, so it's like when you finally create one of those and you're so proud of it and you think, wow, that has just the perfect balance to it. And then you deliver it for the 30th time in five years. You know, you have to do it sometimes four times a day because you have repetitive classes, or at least when I was teaching, I kind of repeated some of the same lessons over and over per day. And eventually you just want to change it just because, even if in the back of your mind, you know, it's still working objectively, you sit there and think, I know this works. I, by the end of it, I can see the understanding. I have proof that they have understood but at the same time, you just get restless, I guess, with it. That's how I felt reading these these poems. Um, certainly, a lot of them hit very strongly, and I thought they were pretty excellent. And then you read the 30th one, and you just think, gosh, you know, I think I got this. Or, you know, I, I don't want to say that this should change, because obviously there's something working about it. At the same time, I couldn't help but feel restlessness as I read some of these. And part of what makes them work so well is that the connections to 2020 the year in which I'm reviewing this, are incredibly obvious and strong. And now I think that could be because most of these are about romance, romantic interest, 
love affairs, things like that. And that, that's as nearly a timeless a topic as you could choose for poetry. It's paired well with poetry for as long as we've been writing it as people, I think. And I just think that that pairing is so natural that, you know, it's not like romance is going away anytime as long as humans are around. So it works quite well and feels relevant too. Also, a lot of the poems are about nostalgia and, and memory, another pretty timeless human experience as long as people continue to age and memory continues to be a complex and fickle thing for people then these poems will be relevant because a lot of it is his reflections and feeling nostalgic or maybe, you know, feeling mournful or regretful of uh, in relation to the past and things that he either did and appreciated or he failed to do and now regrets. And so as far as relevant concerns, he's playing with, you know, pretty timeless, time-honored human stuff. And I think in that regard, it works really well and holds up. I would also say that in our current media climate, a lot of TV and movies are pretty nostalgia-heavy, and there's a lot of repeats of sequels and reboots and remakes of things, and this is kind of just the environment we live in in, in almost any form of media. Even books aren't immune to it. Literature, um, in some regards, is not. Sequels are demanded. Trilogies are, you know, the commonplace vehicle, and, you know, and so I think originality can be a bit... I don't know, hard to come by in a way. And I think some of his concerns are, are similar about memory, though they're more about, again, they're, they're less about recreating the past and trying to relive it instead just, you know, reflecting on it and trying to hold on to it as long as you can. And so I think there are some connections there, too, that are quite relevant. I would also note in terms of relevancy and connections he wrote explicitly about his um, romantic partners being men. So the poetry is explicitly like gay in nature and deals with topics about queer romance and gay romance. And so, and even in the poetry itself, he acknowledges how he was shunned and cast away and cast out of some circles socially because of, you know, these engagements that he had and because of his sexual orientation. I think obviously the, the shunning aspect is not gone in 2020, but certainly he would have been embraced, I think, more a little more wholeheartedly and with open arms in the artistic world. Um, and so we can do that for him now in 2020. Uh, in the 1900s, he obviously met with a ton more resistance. And I think a lot of his poetry circulated privately. He wrote a lot of it just for friends and contacts and didn't actually publish very much, perhaps for that exact reason, knowing that he would be sort of informally exiled in a sense because of... Um, because of his sexual orientation. So that is definitely relevant too. I think a lot of the poems read kind of as neutral love poetry, um, though again, I'm, I'm no scholar. I don't know. I'm not like in deeply invested in, in sort of queer studies and things like that. So there could be elements and aesthetic elements of it that read really strongly that way that perhaps I just missed. But to me, a lot of it does come off as, as pretty standard romance poetry. Let's get into the specific elements and some quotes and examples of the poetry. I'm going to run through a few different quotes that I thought effectively show off his style and sort of um, give a sense of what the writing is like here. Overall, the, the poems are pretty spare, is how I describe them. As I mentioned, most of them are extremely short, which I think for me in poetry anyway is the, is the right length. I think shorter is better just across the board. Not always true, but for me is usually a better or more preferable form. On page 28, there's a quote that says, That afternoon at four o'clock we parted, just for a week. Alas, that week became forever. And I think the tone of that, that kind of reluctant, or if not reluctant, again, regretful tone, 
is permeating most of the poems. A lot of it deals with, as I mentioned, memory or nostalgia, and he reflects a lot about love encounters he had in the past. And I think that quote, especially in that last line, that week became forever, is it's kind of that quick like emphasis on the fickle nature of time and how it's kind of brutal in a way. It's pretty unforgiving. Sometimes when you get into a situation you think will be forever, it, it gets cut off, or and the vice versa can also be true. Sometimes you do something momentarily that you think will end soon, and then you wake up and it's 10 years later and you know you don't know what has happened to the time. And so I think that his kind of spare style emphasizes that in a way and I really like that quote at the end it doesn't feel fully stripped down or like it's missing something but he definitely can feel withholding at times I think though in the right way especially when you're talking about memory and how memory in people can be so unreliable and so shifting there are certainly many elements of, of romance and love that we could unpack from the collection of poems that Penguin assembled here um, one of them on page 31 one of the poems had a quote that I really like too and it reads one candle will suffice. The gentle light it gives suits the ambience better and makes the room more alluring for the shades of love whenever they may come. And this is something that gets brought up later in the same, or maybe it's the same stanza or a different stanza, but he repeats lines, I think, pretty cleverly, or if not cleverly, at least pretty effectively. And I think the one that comes up again in that poem is the one candle will suffice, which at one in one sense is such a nice little image and a clear, I don't know, evocative thought or um kind of setting for for romance but also kind of just sets up his simple and straightforward desires and how he can present things that he wants in such a clear and in a clear way and without a lot of i don't know like rhetorical dressing or in a lot of dressing up in terms of the way it's written again it's pretty spare a lot of the poems are written in such a straightforward manner and i i really like that quote and the repetition there i think again with the candle just works really well it kind of sounds desirous without sounding desperate and kind of sounds eager without sounding over eager i suppose almost business-like but not cold in a way and it's kind of difficult to pull off that tone i could have done without him capitalizing the terms uh the shades of love Th- those words are capitalized for that reasons unknown i guess we could ponder that shades i think plays as an image again well with you know candlelight and kind of flickering changing shadows that sort of thing and so I, I do enjoy that pairing. I think that word choice works really well. In terms of why it's capitalized, though, I'm not sure. That's definitely an older rhetorical move. You don't see that a lot in 2020. Authors capitalizing random words for effect that has disappeared from our kind of strategic toolkit in writing. Now, not all of the style worked for me all the time. And as my kind of one sentence simile review, hopefully revealed or hinted at, there were moments when it just kind of dragged on me. A lot of these poems felt extremely similar to one another, and them being compiled in the way that Penguin compiled them here, it, they just felt repetitive after a time. And there were elements, too, that kind of graded on me in, in slight ways. Here's a quote from page 53 that I think illustrates some of the issues I had with the style. From the office where he'd been taken on to fill a position that was trivial and poorly paid, eight pounds a month, including bonus, he emerged as soon as he'd finished the dreary task that kept him bent over his desk all afternoon. And there's a couple moments and twists in there that I guess rereading this now, I don't I don't totally hate, but it's the level of detail. And then there's the parentheses with the eight pounds a month, including bonus. A lot of these technical aspects and the way he chooses to catalog some detail meticulously and then some non or not meticulously feels 
had to, I'm, random is way too harsh to say, but it does feel, I don't know, a little boring at times and a little bit disengaged from the rest of the topic. Like, it, you know, if you want to re-emphasize to me the kind of doldrums of your work and how disinterested you are in that work, I don't, saying the amount of money you made doesn't do a lot for me. He is concerned, though, you can tell with his finances and a lot of this, he, in, in one poem, loses a lover because the, that person finds a, another lover who makes a lot more money. He clearly, um, this author, has issues with the struggling artist lifestyle, how he can't pay bills, and finances come up a lot. It's certainly a valid topic. I just don't think any of the poems actually delved into those struggles well or presented the conflict in any internal way and didn't really didn't give me a sense of his mentality other than just general frustration and so i think some of these details can feel a bit i don't know accounting like and so it's almost him just listing off technical details which again in poems that are really cut down to the bone and really spare it just feels like i would rather have heard about anything else or i would rather you dedicated more time to exploring that topic and my issues aren't just stylistic, too. I think thematically there's a couple of things in here that I would question, just on a personal level. There's one poem called Days of 1909, 1910, and 1911, where he writes about observing a blacksmith's son as who's sort of apprenticing, and he thinks he's really beautiful, but writes about how he, quote, went utterly to waste because he's, because he's a laborer and his body is subject to kind of the the harsh conditions of labor he says stuck there in that grimy blacksmith shop worn down by the rack and strain of work and by the working man's rough pleasures the boy went quickly to ruin and it does bring up questions of what he thinks r- ruinousness is and what he thinks beauty is he certainly takes a lot of pleasure in just the form of people their muscles the sinew the like physical shape of people he describes all of these young men he seems to also have an extreme uh, attraction to people in their 20s and it seems like in one poem he writes about a person who's 30 as if they're like ancient and rotten and dead uh, so he definitely has this fixation on, on youthful beauty young beauty and in that poem too it hints that he doesn't have any appreciation or any kind of room in his mind for beauty outside of the physical form there there's no beauty in actions for others you know making something beautiful beautiful being a blacksmith doing labor none of that seems to evoke any you know beauty for him in that sense, then, I think his definition of beauty is pretty narrow, and a lot of the poems, again, in my mind, are kind of harmfully repetitive to read. Now, again, harmful, I don't, you know, you're not going to be mentally, physically, emotionally harmed by these, but I think, in a sense, just as a reader, they're harmful in that they're not that engaging, because he does kind of strike upon the same topics in a repetitive way, and again, he's very concerned with, like, the form of the, of his lovers, and the, the shape of them, and the color of their skin, the bronze of it, you know, the hues, and a lot of it is those sensual and sensuous detail. I'll conclude the quotes part, though, with my favorite quote of his, which was from page five, he says, immersed again in art, I recover from the labor of creating it. And that's just a great, I don't know, summary of the artistic process. I think for a lot of people and artistic blockages is you just have to keep finding excellent things and at the very worst, try and copy or emulate them. And at the very best, strike upon a new style or a new message or some kind of new delivery system that is creative and interesting. And I really like that quote. I wish more of the poems in here would have been about you know, art and creating it. And because I would say 90% plus of these, if not all of them are more romance and love poetry. So that insight sharp as it was, was kind of fleeting in a semi disappointing way. Let's head to the literary corner. Now, this is the part of the review when I try and do a slightly, um, 
pedagogical thing, just try and teach you at least one literary element or discuss one specifically and in some detail. Today I dug into the Penguin Literary Dictionary, as I do for these often, to try and find ideas and inspiration. I found one that um, surprised me, and it's the description of literature as either Apollonian or Dionysian, which I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. Those are terms derived from Apollo and Dionysus, who were Greek gods in their pantheon, Apollo and Dionysus. Um, so apparently this was a description used for literature in the 18 and 1900s. It became pretty popular. Nietzsche described it this way, and I guess kind of popularized the term. Same with D.H. Lawrence. But it's the idea that some literature can be Apollonian, which is like it's sunny and serene, I guess sort of peaceful, calming. And then Dionysian means stormy and turbulent, so choose the goddess of, I believe, the harvest and weather. And so it's kind of this dichotomy or this split in literature, and apparently some scholars or, you know, um, writers, creators believe that great literature could have both elements, maybe in equal measure or in some kind of balance. Apparently Nietzsche defined um, Greek tragedies or, or uh, identified Greek tragedies as having both elements and sort of a balance between the chorus and the characters. D.H. Lawrence, I suppose, was one who promoted himself as more of a um, Dionysian writer than Apollonian. Shakespeare's sonnets, as Penguin notes, has a lot of elements of both and kind of blend both in the same sonnet, which I think can make them really appealing to different readers and, in a sense, probably hold them up as timeless. And I'm going to throw C.P. Cavafy in that same group. I think a lot of his poems have both of these elements in balance. There are moments when he kind of appreciates the beauty that he experienced and then regrets that it's gone in an honest way in the same poem in some of the same lines even and so he certainly has this he holds up physical beauty as this wondrous thing that like transformed his life and you know revels in perfection of the human body and the sensual pleasures but then kind of mourns that it's gone for him uh, kind of odd considering i think he wrote a lot of these in his 30s and 40s again i think his his view of age and like when you're considered at your at your peak or prime as it were is a bit skewed to me it seems but you know i'm i'm only 30 myself so maybe maybe things will really go downhill from here hard to say i guess we'll have to see what the future holds but he, he certainly has a bias for these younger years of his youth when he i think was indulging himself without limits and without restraint so in a way he can come across as i guess a bit turbulent uh, in that way where he seems maybe disconcerted that his life has changed so much but uh, so many of these poems i would say in tone are just overall positive and they sort of they're nostalgic but they don't have regret in them they just have appreciation and he kind of is desperate to remember with clarity the things he experienced so i'd say cp um Kavafi is yeah he's a little bit of apollo a little bit of dionysus it's a good balance on a lot of these poems with that said, let's transition to our official review then for this collection of poetry. Our reviews now have two parts. I've amended a second part to it, which will be first, and it's the Russell French In Memoriam. So, what's good about it segment? This is in honor of my grandfather, a man who, especially in his later years, really loved to ask the question, uh, so what's good about it? He was certainly an optimist, and we honor him here with this segment. And I mostly added this in because some of the um, in some of the one and two reviews in the past have been, I think, a little negative in tone. So I do want to get in at least one appreciation before moving into the review score. I think I appreciated the quietness and the quietude of this poetry. 
Um, I think jumping from poems like these to, if you were, for example, to like go read some Shakespeare or like a sonnet, it would be, I think, profoundly, um, it would have a profound whiplash effect uh, rhetorically on you. I think there are certain line breaks and certain ways he kind of splits up stanzas in these poems that are intriguing, and there's choices in there that you can savor and think about. You can kind of get some flow and try and hear some of the sounds and things. So there's some intrigue in them, but a lot of it is stated just so simply. Hopefully the quotes I pulled illustrated that. And it's good to be reminded, I think, of how poetry, I think, in 2020 is considered one of the more intimidating writing formats and things to read. But when you read poetry like this, you're reminded that, you know, a single image can conjure up an entire poem and can kind of underscore the whole poem. And so I think, yeah, when poetry is stated this way in such a direct and simple manner, it can be, I don't know, it was kind of reassuring to read in a way. It was kind of peaceful and, again, felt very quiet to me, which I did like. As for an official review score, we are back in the two zone. Uh, we've had um, we had a three last week with the Perkins Gilman, and that was a it was a strong, extremely celebratory three. This I think is a solid two, and so for our podcast, a rating of a two means you could read this. Perhaps it's a it's like a maybe. It's a qualified recommendation. I think as poetry collections go, I. It, it fit the requirements that I usually have for poetry collections, which is like I gasped, you know, not maybe literally gasped, but I sort of like really deeply um, connected to and appreciated some poems. And then others, I was just had kind of had the thousand yard dead eyed stare of, you know, no connection, just total disinterest. And I think with poetry collections, that's basically how it goes for most people. I, there are very few poets um, for me uh, where I have a t- complete, you know, I'm completely enraptured through every poem. So in that sense, it is really kind of a perfect two. I think if you're into the simple, pared-down, short style of the poetry, then you know this might be a three for you, I suppose. It also depends on the kind of thematic elements you like to read about. Penguin did, a, I think, the right thing here in collecting... Well, the right thing? They, they did a strong thing here where they collected almost exclusively these sensual love poems. I've read online through uh, Wikipedia and Poetry Foundation that he apparently had other categories of poetry. Some of it was just based on historical events, and then other things were more uh, philosophical in nature. I think I would have preferred a much more diverse collection of his poetry. I think reading the same sensual poems and topics over and over, it didn't do a lot for me after about 20 or 30 of them. I think, you know, I found the ones that I liked, and then I started to, my mind surges glaze over a little bit at some of the others. Uh, so for me, I think I would have, you know, been much I would have had a stronger reaction to a, a diverse sampling here but I think Penguin did something extremely coherent and I can see exactly why they built the collection that they did here it's yeah I think coherence the best word for it it's extremely clear how they how and why they brought all these together it almost feels in a way sort of scholarly like if you were studying this author if you're studying CP Cavafy for some reason this would be an extremely coherent set to have because you get all of this similar writing and thematic work in one collection so in that regard it definitely works but perhaps not for me so a two and that concludes our review for Remember Body, a poetry collection by C.P. Cavafy. As always, thank you so much for listening. We're honored and flattered to have you here on our 43rd episode. I'm going to start doing some social media plugs at the end of this. Right now, we are only really on Instagram. That's where I post weekly art and drawings for each of the books we do for review. And I also post updates from the pod and reminders of when we post. Though at this point, we're pretty much posting on Mondays all the time. So you can pretty much count on that for the foreseeable future. We're a Monday-based podcast now. But if you're looking for our Instagram account, we are at the stumped. That is the the word the plus the word stump ed stumped. 
and that's where you again you can find those posts updates and uh and some artwork too which i do i might almost take longer on those than the pod at this point i've gotten a pretty good rhythm here with these reviews and can fill out the outlines pretty quickly the readings take some time because i want to be cautious with them but at this point the art is like the that's the albatross now that's the thing that that takes the longest which makes sense because i am an amateur unskilled artist who's like relearning how to draw after a decade so that uh, that seems to fit next week we've got a short story by uh dostoyevsky a pretty legendary author in the canon and uh he's written some long russian literature and kind of has a reputation for certain topics so we'll try and dig into him next week i believe amanda will be joining me for that one so you can look forward to that have a guest back on the pod again thanks for listening this week and until next time we will see you between the classics